0: So we're reading in Matthew chapter 8 today, and uh, Matthew, as we saw last week, Matthew has resumed his narration of this gospel story. So Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper ...came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest... And offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word this morning. I know that You have said that Your Word does not return void, and so we we all... Trust that you're going to do with it as you have determined to do. And I, I pray that we would uh, be hopeful of that. And we thank you for that. Lord, bless your word as it goes out. Lord, I, I pray that as we study this, this passage specifically. And as we move through this gospel. That we would all uh, see Jesus a little better. That we would grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. And his ministry here on earth. And who he is. Lord, I pray that we will grow in our love for the Scriptures, and that they won't be just a, a book that sits around our house or on our dash until next Sunday, but that it would be something that we we always have within reach, that we we turn to, that we spend our time in, that we we love and 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 glean from. And I pray that you would do that through the preaching of your Word this morning. Lord, I pray that as we gather and as other churches in our area gather. I pray that you would begin to do something possibly unlike you've ever done in this area before. I pray that uh, the preaching of the word of God would would come back into a, a central focus in the life of the church and that there would be a revival of of souls saved people who have sat on church pews for years, people who have never sat on a church pew, Lord, I pray that because the Word of God goes out, that the people of God would become excited and refreshed and encouraged and, and emboldened and empowered by Your Spirit to go and and to, to gather people and to bring them and to drag them and to, to proclaim the Gospel wherever they go, that there would be a revival in this area That that the churches that are already established would be playing rock, paper, scissors for the biggest buildings in the area so that we could fit all the people. And I pray that you would do that even here in our church. God, I pray that as as we've seen this week throughout the world, there's things going on there's there's violence and wars and and things that are scary to people lord we know we have brothers and sisters in other countries who their their governments are are a mess and lord i pray that you would help especially our brothers and sisters but all the people lord i pray that you would bring peace lord i pray for Alexander Turchinov who is now the active president of Ukraine who is an outspoken Baptist elder he's a Christian brother Lord I pray that you would give him wisdom I pray that his his demeanor and his wisdom and his choices and his position would would be a, a magnificent display of the power of God in a man and Lord I pray that you would um, encourage him. Lord, I thank you again for the reading of your word, and I pray that you would bless it and and bless us as we we turn to it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Before we get into this chapter, I want to kind of set the context, as as I often do, because it's important that we know where we are, where we've been, and where we're going. I like to do this every every few weeks. And I I want to do that, set the context Um, I want to explain what Matthew is doing in his gospel at this point And then after that I'm going to explain We're going to talk a little bit about miracles We're going to be looking at a bunch of miracle stories over the next several weeks and months And so I want to talk about miracles And then we'll actually get into these four verses So that's where we're going And if you get confused at any point before we get to the specific passage here, I understand, and uh, this audio will be up on the website, and you can listen to it five or six times between now and next Sunday, and you'll hopefully it'll come clear. I read my manuscript some to Christy this week to make sure that I was keeping a, a logical train of thought, and so I hope that's what happens as it comes out. Um, so, as you can see, we're kind of embarking on a new section of Matthew's gospel, we've been studying for about a year now, we've been studying specific teaching of Jesus, what He said and taught in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're moving back into narration portions of the gospel, kind of telling us the things that Jesus did, and, and first and foremost, we always need to remember that as we look at the these stories, no matter the, the the text or the style of writing, it is, especially in a gospel narrative, the goal is always that we see Jesus, that we look at Jesus, we we learn his character, we learn what type of a man he was, we see the the spirit of God working in him, and we just uh, we we grow in our affections for the Lord Jesus and who he was. Second um, Corinthians, Paul said that. The glory of God shines in the face of Jesus. And he also said before that, that as we behold the glory of God, we are sanctified or transformed or transformed from one degree of glory to another. So we're kind of moved along this process, not by just learning how to do better things, but, but more so just by gazing at Jesus and looking at who he was and, and becoming enthralled in, in this man. Um... So we want to look at Jesus first and foremost. Now, although we're, we're sort of transitioning in the type of literature that we're studying specifically, as far as the grand scheme of Matthew's gospel, we're still kind of looking at a, a little corner pocket, if you will. Matthew is showing us something very specific at this point in his gospel. If you, if you have a Bible, you can look back at, at the end of chapter 4, Uh Matthew kind of explains that Jesus began His earthly ministry in verse 23. He says, "...and He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought Him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and He healed them." And great crowds followed Him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And now those same crowds are the same crowds that seeing when Jesus saw them, He went up on the mountain and He preached. And then as we just saw in verse 1, I'll read it again, it's up here. When He came down from the mountain, great crowds Followed him, so they're still following him. They start, they heard his teaching, and 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 I believe what happens at the end of chapter four is Jesus begins his ministry, and Matthew kind of outlines what his ministry was. His ministry was preaching and miracles, preaching and miracles. And in chapters five, six, and seven, on the Sermon on the Mount, we see a specific example of the teaching. Uh, we can assume that that was probably the message that he preached. Multiple places as he traveled around. The gospel of the kingdom. So we see that specific teaching. And then in verse 1, they they followed him down the mountain. Now, you'll remember that last week I devoted a large portion of the sermon to the authority of Jesus. and I I read a a bunch of scripture from all over the Bible talking about the authority of Jesus, who Jesus is. and, And of course, the testimony of all of scripture is that Jesus is the God of the Bible. And as, as God, He has all authority over all things at all times. But, if you set yourself back in the first century, towards the end of the first century, middle to the end of the first century, when Matthew is writing his gospel, and you're a Jewish person, you might not be so inclined to believe that Jesus, carpenter from Nazareth, Joseph's and Mary, Joseph and Mary's boy crucified by the Romans supposedly came back from the dead three days later you might not be so inclined to believe that he was actually the Messiah and so Matthew is, is very intentional in what he's doing in his gospel he's writing here to show us the authority of Jesus and you remember over and over in the sermon we, we saw those statements that Jesus made statements that said you know he's He was claiming uh, authority over the religious leaders, authority over the law, authority over the earth and and heaven. He implicitly claimed that he was Lord and and judge of all the earth. So in that sermon, we got a good picture of his authority in word. Just what he said. Today, we're moving into chapter 8. And Matthew's going to show us his authority in word deed that is in what he did. Remember chapter 4, he preached and he performed miracles. We saw his preaching. Now we're going to begin to look at his miracles, the things that he actually did on the earth. And if you have a, a Bible in front of you, you can kind of move your eyes down the pages here and, and kind of see where we're going and what we're going to be studying for the next several weeks. Um, in verses 1 through 17 the chapter 8, we have three different stories of, of miraculous healing. They're all three different. They all three come to teach us something different. They're there for a reason. Three stories of miraculous healing. And then in verses 18 through 22, there are two examples of, of people who come to Jesus to follow Him. And, and He kind of lays out the cost. Of following Him. The cost of discipleship. Or we could just say discipleship stories. And then in verses 23 through uh, verse 8 of chapter 9. There are three more stories of the miraculous. The things Jesus did. And those are followed in verses 9 through 17 of chapter 9. With two more discipleship stories. And then in verses 18 through 34, three more miracle stories. So you got three miracles, two discipleship stories, three miracles, two discipleship stories, three miracles. Basically, what Matthew is doing is he's saying, here's what Jesus did, and this is what it looks like to follow him. And this is what he did, and this is what it looks like to follow him, and again, this is what he did. He's answering the question, who is this Jesus and how do we respond to it? He's showing us Jesus has all authority over all things and He requires devotion and allegiance from everyone, all things. And in His earthly ministry, Jesus clearly displayed His authority as God in His words, His teaching, and in His action. That's what we're seeing, word and deed. And when you begin to see these types of themes in the Gospels, they really begin to come alive and they make a lot more sense. Or at least they have for me. Uh, they Hopefully your affections are stirred more for Jesus. You begin to see more of what His ministry was. Those three years when He was doing and teaching. What His job was. Um, and then... Of course, hopefully you would grow in your love for the Word and, and it would kind of come alive. I know as I have studied and read some things this week, my mind has been blown at at who Jesus is. I'm, I'm learning more of who Jesus is through the study of the Word. And it, it truly is living and active. And I hope you guys are seeing that. Um, so Jesus, or Matthew is showing Jesus authority in word and deed. Now the reason that Matthew wants to show us his authority, not only in word, he could have just gave his teaching and said, now obey. But he also shows it in deed is because that has been and is always the theme in all of scripture. And especially in the Old Testament that Matthew would have had. That was the theme in all of scripture. When it comes to the miraculous things and and the authority of God's Word going out, they are directly correlated. Now a lot of people today are under the impression that because Christianity is a spiritual faith and the Bible is the book of that faith, then that the Bible is is just replete with miracles everywhere, just miracles all on every page and, and therefore we come to everyday life And we see miracles every day. And we're looking for miracles. And looking for miraculous intervention into time and space. Well that is an error. If you read scripture. And and that leads people to some strange beliefs at best. And and at worst some dangerous demonic error. Because they're always looking for the miraculous. And if something seems to be miraculous. They just jump at it. And the problem is. That, that leads to that is most people don't know the difference between a miracle and God's sovereignty and providence over and in all things. And as we move into these sections, we we need to understand what a miracle is and what a miracle is not. That's that's important. Um, a miracle is when the laws of nature and of time and space, the natural world, are suspended or altered in order to bring about another outcome than what would have normally happened that's a miracle so parting the Red Sea that's a miracle finding a check in your mailbox for a certain amount of money that you needed to pay your bills not a miracle making oil and flour appear where there was none that's a miracle overcoming a sickness through the means of medicine it's not a miracle Instantaneously healing deathly diseases and walking on the water, those are miracles. Finding your keys under the couch cushion is not a miracle. Now, in saying that, we have to have to clarify, we are a we, we do follow the reformed tradition. So we believe in a big God who is sovereign over all things and, and provident providentially working in all things. So that doesn't make them miracles, that just makes them Things that are natural that simply would not be possible had God not been there. Had God not made them possible. So, so the fact that this podium is not disintegrating into the, a million wood fibers, it's not a miracle. But if God were not holding it together, it wouldn't be here. So, so there's no need to say in a situation that something was a God thing. Because they're all God things. My, my lungs are, are pumping my body. That's a God thing. They're all God things. Because it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. In Him all things hold together. He works with His hands. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Of course, anthropomorphically. He doesn't have hands. So we need to know what a miracle is and what a miracle isn't. Now we just need to understand that the Bible is not a book that is just filled with miracles, chocked full of miracles on every page. For the most part, there were only three different time periods in Scripture, and in human history, when miracles were prevalent. There were the ministries of Moses and Joshua, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and the ministry of Jesus and His apostles. Now if you put those time periods together... Altogether, you got about 200 years in thousands of years of human history when miracles were prevalent. Now, I say for the most part, because there were examples here and there, but for the most part, miracles were prevalent in about 200 years out of all of human history. It's also important to notice that in all those periods, the miraculous things that were performed were given to support the words that those men said. God gave these men the ability to perform miracles. To validate their words. The message that they proclaimed. And when those men spoke. The words that came out were the words of God. And we have them recorded in scripture. So, so when Moses was speaking to God. And he said. Moses, or God told Moses to go to Pharaoh. And, and say let my people go. And Moses said. Well, what if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? God said, what is that in your hand? You know the story. It's a staff. Throw it down. Becomes a snake. Take it back up. Turns back into a staff again. God is saying, you're going to have the ability to do the miraculous. And that's going to be a sign that the words you're saying are the words of God. Elijah, when he was calling down fire from heaven, he prayed that God would do it so that the people would know that Yahweh was God... And Elijah was indeed his servant preaching his message. And God did it. When we come to Jesus, we read John 5.36. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. That's just one of many references that that show that the the things that Jesus did, His miracles, were simply a support for His Word and His, His ministry. Him being that they were a sign that God sent him, and then uh, we come to the uh, apostles in Acts fourteen, speaking of Paul and Barnabas. It says, "So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." And that's one of many. So, so, so the testimony throughout Scripture is miracles. ...were given to support the word going out as God's words. So when Matthew wants to convince his readers of, of the divinity of Jesus, of the deity of Jesus... ...he does that through giving his teaching, the words of God... ...but then he also gives his deeds. He gives examples of his deeds which validate his words as being the words of God. And he, he does that by providing eyewitness testimony to those deeds and those teachings... Because that's been the model throughout history. That's what God does. As an aside, just so you know, the people on TV healing people and, and doing this stuff, it's not real. It's fake. Because we have God's Word right here. There's, there's no need for, for God to validate any more of His words unless we're going to turn to the back page of our Bible and start writing it down. Because we have the full and complete Word of God in our hands. So so I would be weary of anybody who says they can do a miracle and, and as we'll see the, the, the claims are often uh, pretty far away from the biblical miracles. So Matthew is showing us that Jesus was in fact God's servant, speaking God's words on God's behalf. And that goes right along with this authority theme that we've seen in the sermon. He speaks with authority and he acts with authority. That's what we're seeing. Follow me, I'm getting that? So we got context, miracles. Now let's look at this passage. See, verse one: He came down from the mountain. Great crowds followed him. Verse two: And behold—that means look or or get a load of this. We can almost imagine, picture Matthew on the scene telling the story. He's saying, they, you know, Jesus came down from the mountain. The crowds are following him. And you're not going to believe what happened. This is in the emphatic position. So it's, it's, it's really a surprising and emphatic statement. You're not going to believe this. But behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. We'll stop there. Because there's a lot packed into that. It says that a leper came to him. A leper in the Bible was a person who suffered from any of many different skin diseases. But the worst of those, what we still call leprosy today, is also known as Hansen's disease. And it's, it's a chronic bacterial disease that affects a person's skin. their peripheral nerves, upper respiratory system, mucous membranes... It would start out as dry patches on the skin, kind of like an eczema or something. Turn into what would look like scales on the skin. that would glisten and, and shine almost white in the light. Uh, then they would, of course, progress into other types of lesions and growths on the skin. Boils and stuff like that. For many years... People thought that leprosy caused your fingers and your toes and your ears and your nose, your extremities to fall off. But what actually happens is, as the disease progresses, those who suffer from it, because of the the nerve damage, they, they lose loss in those extremities. They can't feel them. So... They can't feel when they're hurting themselves or when they're, they're, they're pushing something too hard or touching something too hard. Things where we would get hurt and we'd say, ow, I hate pain. There's a good side to pain because you know you're getting hurt. Well, they couldn't feel it and so they would simply rub off their fingers and their toes. They would scratch their face and not know it and just scratch straight through. They didn't know because they couldn't feel it. So they would end up with missing fingers and toes and, and ears and, and holes in their skin. Because of the attack on the respiratory system and the mucous membranes, the cartilage in the nose would often deteriorate. And so their nose would kind of flatten out and broaden out on their face, uh, causing uh, permanent disfigurement. They would look pretty bad. Um, Would also lead to excessive fluid in the eyes. So watery eyes eventually. It would cause harm to their vocal cords and, and, and destroy their vocal cords where their voice would be raspy and messed up. They couldn't talk well. That was irreversible. Other symptoms would include stuffy nose, nosebleeds, severe pain, muscle weakness, growths on the skin, ulcers on the feet. Infected ulcers would often get to a, a stage to where they actually emitted a foul odor where you could smell the infected, stinking, rotting flesh of a a leper if they were around. So leprosy was and still is uh, one of the most devastatingly grotesque diseases that that have ever existed. Of course now it's easily treatable and and not as well known as it was then but there are still countries that have leper colonies and they they still uh, see leprosy the way people saw it in, in biblical times. Now, remember, Jesus is a Jew and this man... This leper is more than likely a Jew. In Leviticus 13 and 14 we read very specific rules concerning leprosy and the Jews. And what they could and couldn't do. And and how to tell what they had and, and things like that. Those who were found to have leprosy. If you went to the priest and he declared that you were a leper. You were considered ceremonially unclean. Banished out of the city. You had to live in a leper colony outside of the city gates. They were not allowed to have contact with any other people without that person also becoming unclean. They were commanded to, uh, if they saw another person walking towards them, they were commanded to cover their mouth and shout, unclean, unclean, so that nobody would get close to them. Because it was that deadly, or so they thought. They were commanded to grow their hair out. Mess it up and look really disheveled. If they were a male, they'd grow their facial hair out and and mess it all up. Uh, They had to wear shabby, torn clothing in order to make themselves, by all outward appearances, look as hideous and grotesque as possible so that you would never confuse a leper with a normal person. And other people would know to stay away. A person who had leprosy, because it was, at that time, completely untreatable was considered a walking dead man. Sure, he's alive now. He's walking now, but it won't be long, and he'll simply rot away. He he will be dead soon. For a Jewish person, according to their law that God had given, the most unclean thing you could touch was a corpse, a dead body. After that was a leper. One commentator said, these wretched untouchables were trapped... In a hopeless misery. In later Talmudic writings, we find that 3rd century Jewish scholars ruled that it was unlawful for a leper to come within 4 cubits of another person or a 100 cubits if the wind was blowing. Because they thought it was severely contagious. We know now it's not, but they didn't know. Severely contagious, they thought. 3rd uh, century Jewish scholar... Resh Lakish said... If he saw a leper... He would pick up rocks... And start throwing them... Just to make sure... He didn't come any closer... Would rather get away... That's how they treated... Lepers... Leprosy... Was considered... To be of a nature... That was far worse... Than just a sickness... A cold or a flu... It was considered... To be brought on... By God himself... As judgment... It could only be taken away... By God himself... Leprosy was nothing more than the effect of sin on a fallen world. And of course we know all disease and sickness is the effect of sin on a fallen world. But leprosy was then and still is a, is considered a perfect picture of sin itself. It fits our own doctrine of sin very well. It was loathsome to those who had it and those who didn't have it. It was, it was a spreading disease. It would start small and then rapidly eat away at the entire human body. It was incurable. Once a person had it, there was nothing a person could do about it on their own. For only God can remove such a disease. And of course, it fits very well with, with our doctrine of sin. It, it, it covers the entire person, mind, body and spirit. So, notice what's wrong with this passage. First, a leper came to him. So, that's against the law. He's already breaking the law. This man's risking further punishment by even approaching Jesus. In their own thinking, this man was risking the lives of all the people around and Jesus himself just by approaching. But notice how he comes. A leper came to him and knelt before him. Now this is literally denoting a posture of worship. This word, we get our word prostrate. uh, To bow down in worship. So he, he comes to Jesus. He's bowing down almost in a posture of worship. More than likely with his face to the ground. And he says, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean. He doesn't come staking a claim on what God owes him as a child of Abraham. He doesn't come positively affirming that Jesus should do something for him. Or saying, I am clean, I am healthy, I am pure. He just comes. And he bows before the Lord. And he specifically addresses the authority of Jesus. If... You will. That means if you want to. If you desire to. Lord, if it is your pleasure, you can make me clean. You have the power. There's no question about that. You have the power. The question is whether or not you want to heal me. You can. The leper leaves the outcome of this situation completely up to the Lord Jesus. He's come, he's risking the small amount of liberty that he has left, risking the purity and the lives of those around him, risking the purity of this man, Jesus, and he humbles himself under the will and the good pleasure of Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. And notice Jesus' response in verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, Stop there. We can imagine this. Crowds are following Jesus after this sermon. They were just astonished at His teaching. And they're following Jesus. And a leper begins to come through the crowd. Of course, as people begin to realize that this is a leper, there's, they're more than likely screaming, running, spreading out. Leper, unclean, run! And they, they spread out. They're getting as far away from the leper as they can. They they get as far away as they can and while still being able to see Him, the crowd parts and Jesus doesn't move. He he just stops and stands still. He just turns around and this man approaches Him. Now if you're a Jew watching this, you're sick on your stomach. You're nauseated because a leper, the second most unclean thing a Jew can come in contact with, has just approached Jesus. He's just been in, in... close proximity to all of you. So you're you're nauseated. And this man says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And against everything they had ever seen, against all the rules they had learned, everything they had been taught, against what the law said, Jesus reaches out and He touches the leper. Now we can see, and we'll see next week, that there's no need for Jesus to touch anybody. He could have just said, be clean. He could have thought it while the guy was 100 yards away. But he didn't. Everything that Jesus is doing is is very pointed, is very specific. He's teaching us something here. So he reaches out his hand and he touches the leper. Now the word touches might better be translated grab or or laid hold. He he lays hold of this man. He, He holds him. Jesus, with His own flesh body, identifies Himself with the flesh, the rotting, stinking, disease-ridden flesh of a leper. And Jesus speaks. I will be clean. His authority over this disease and the disease covered flesh of this man is clear. He does desire to make him clean. He he wants to restore this man back to the community. He's, He's willing that this man be cleansed of his impurity and escorted back into the community of the living. And Matthew says, and immediately, that is in a moment, in an instant, no time went by, there were no stages, it was at the blink of an eye, in an instant, immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Now that's a far cry from today's so-called faith healers who, who, with their claims of healing, uh, uh, you know, lower back pain or, or you know, you're healed. Just go home and, and keep thinking positively, and, and it'll stay gone. And but as soon as your faith dies, then it's going to come back. So that's on you, not me. Now this man's disease is healed immediately against the laws of nature. This man's deadly disease is gone. Jesus touched him and rather than Jesus catching leprosy, this man caught purity. He's clean. So again, imagine being in the shoes of a leper. Maybe it's been two weeks, maybe it's been two years, maybe it's been 20 years since you've had contact with another human being. You've been ostracized from your family, secluded from your synagogue, kicked out of your community. This is a man, more than likely, he's married, he's probably got children that he's he's never held, he's never touched since the day that the priest said, you have leprosy. He hasn't touched them, he hasn't smelled them, he hasn't been close enough to see the color of their eyes. You've probably, by this time, rubbed off fingers and toes. Your skin is glistening with white scales. You have to get up every day and purposefully make yourself look homeless and wretched and disgusting. Shouting unclean every time anybody else comes around. And this could have been going on for years. And immediately, you're clean. Fingers that were gone just reappear. Pain stops. The smell is gone. The boils are gone. Your eyes Dries up, your nose stops hurting or stops bleeding. You're cleansed in an instant. You're cleansed, and notice Jesus doesn't stop, but He gives him a command. Verse four, and Jesus said to him, "See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them." So Jesus tells him not to tell anyone. Keep it quiet. Now you imagine, you've had leprosy. It's gone. Don't say anything to anybody. Mark, in his account, tells us that this man does not obey this command. He actually speaks freely to the point where Jesus' fame spreads. He can't even travel in public very much anymore without being mobbed. and He secludes himself to, to the wilderness areas. He commands him to go, show himself to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This would have consisted of over a week's worth of ritual cleansing and sacrifices and waiting and staring at your skin. You're just waiting. You would you would go the first day and you would you would have two birds and Uh, uh, some wood and some hyssop and some other things and you would kill one of the birds over water you would dip the other bird in the water set it free shave all the hair off your body you could come back into the city but you couldn't go back into your tent into your home and then you just wait washing your skin just hoping it doesn't come back and then after that you would sacrifice some more and finally the priest would declare you clean if you stayed cleansed and then you could get back into your home Be cleansed. You'll be declared cleansed. Welcome back into society. Go back home. Hug your wife. Hug your children. He doesn't say you're clean. Now go and do whatever you want to do as long as you mean well. He doesn't say, "Look, the law of Moses is useless. It's outdated. So don't pay any attention to what anybody says because you don't because they don't know what I've done to you and you know so you just keep it with yourself and do whatever you want. That's all that matters." He doesn't say that. He tells the man to go. Submit himself to what the law prescribed for him to do. Go to the priest. Let him check you head to toe. Shave your head. Shave your body. Offer the first sacrifice. Wait a week. And offer another sacrifice. Shave your body again. And then you'll be declared cleansed. Now that would have been a terrifying thought for a leper. You can imagine noticing some, some dry patches on your skin or some things. And the time finally comes when you have to go to the, the priest and have him check you out. And, and the law as it stands is terrifying. Because you know the law says, best case scenario, I'm secluded for a week. The difference for this man now is he can, he can boldly approach the priest submitting himself to the law of god humbling himself under god's holy standard without any fear that the sentence of the law will come down on him again he doesn't have to worry he's been made clean and therefore the standard that god has set is going to be the most beautiful thing that he's ever heard sure hey shave me head to toe check me all around i'll do whatever it takes i'll sit and wait for seven days i'll shave again you can check me it doesn't matter because i'm clean he has proven to be clean and these priests will check them, check him and, and he will be declared clean. The law at that moment will be holy and righteous and good. It will be a beautiful thing because it will declare him clean. And this would have been a testimony to everyone including the priests and the religious leaders. They would have been responsible for analyzing him from head to toe and checking him and making sure he goes through all the proper steps. And they would have had to declare, you have been cleansed from a deadly, flesh-eating disease that our scriptures say only God can clean. 1 Kings 5-7, the king of Israel says, Am I a God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? He's saying, am I God to cure leprosy? Only God can cure leprosy. The Jews were well aware that only God can cure leprosy. And this man's going to show up and he's going to be analyzed. And the proof would have been in their declaration of his purity. You are clean. Maybe he would have gotten some sort of a certificate or something. And they would have been forced to admit that God has done something miraculous. He's done a miracle. And this man would have said, it was Jesus. From Nazareth. Mary and Joseph's boy, the, the carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth has authority over physical diseases that only God Himself possesses. And He would have been declared clean. And He would have been a proof to them and to everyone. Again, we can't forget. Leprosy's correlation to our state in sin and depravity. Leprosy and all disease and sickness is a result of the fall. Because there is sin, there is sickness, there is disease. But leprosy is also a picture of sin. It starts small and it spreads rapidly. It takes over the entire person. It leaves us in complete helplessness sure we can walk and talk and get along in this world just fine but spiritually the bible says we are dead in trespasses and sins in our normal state because of our sin we're ostracized from god we are we are separated from the the people of god we're helpless and hopeless in and of ourselves we are in despair and we have no ability to do anything about it we are at our end And so we have to come to Jesus like the leper. And we come humbly. We come in a posture of worship. We come with with reckless abandon. Maybe throwing all of what liberty we think we have to the wind. We submit ourselves to the will of the Lord. We come diseased, disgusting, reeking of sin. And then the Son of God comes in human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh, identified Himself with our sin sick flesh, except He's not susceptible to our diseases. He is immune. When He encounters our flesh, He doesn't catch our sin, but we catch His purity. We come humbly. Like spiritual beggars, poor in spirit, broken because of sin, mourning our condition. And the Lord Jesus doesn't just extend one hand, but He extends two hands. And He says, I will be clean. And when we come this way, we are given the righteousness of Christ. Our impurity is immediately gone as far as God's concerned. Immediately we are cleansed. We are in that moment declared righteous. We are cleansed, we are pure, we are ceremonially clean. And then we're introduced back into the or introduced into the community of faith, into the land of the living. We we come and we take our place in the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21, this, this glorious city of countless, priceless jewels purchased and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Himself. Just like a leper. God's perfect standard When we come to the law of God and it doesn't stand over us as a constant reminder that we aren't good enough but rather the law of God becomes more and more beautiful because we read and we realize that Jesus met that requirement for us. Every point of the law He obeyed for us on our behalf. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect so that we... Might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so we now boldly approach God through the mediation of our high priest. And we're looked at according to his righteousness, and we are declared clean, ceremonially clean. Let's pray.